What's up everybody? Gen X Dividend Investor here. Welcome to a new channel dedicated to dividends, wealth management, and business. So what you see here is a copy of my Google Sheets portfolio where I track my businesses, but where I've deleted the first 24 rows that are normally in it, and instead I'm only showing my 25th position by market value, which is Disney. Over each subsequent portfolio video, I'll show and analyze another business of mine, going from my smallest position to my largest, until my full portfolio is revealed. This portfolio represents a significant portion of my net worth, so what you'll see is real skin in the game for my wife and myself, as people who started with a net worth of less than zero when you count student loans. In this video, I'll go over the fields I'm tracking in my spreadsheet, and then I'll talk about Walt Disney himself, then I'll go over the Walt Disney Company businesses, how they are growing, their competitors, their leadership, and then some business metrics. So let's go over the spreadsheet. Again, as I said, I've deleted the first uh, 24 positions so we can just focus on Disney and then I'll, I'll add in as time goes on, um, which is why you see this just representing Disney. Let me zoom in a little bit. All right, so here's the ticker. Uh, this is just a, a little JPEG I pulled off of Wikipedia. By the way, there's an interesting little hack I noticed on Google Finance um, that they don't advertise is that if you actually use name, it'll pull back the name of the stock. So maybe there are other kind of hidden Google Finance features that are that are listed in their API that they don't list in the documentation. Anyways, um, so the ticker, the number of shares, the share price, this is conditional, so if it's gone down uh, from yesterday, it's red. If it's gone up, it's green. And then we come into a sparkline, which shows the Disney uh, stock charted out over the last year. And if it's gone up in the last 365 days, then it'll draw a green line. Otherwise, it'll draw a red um, sparkline. Current PE, this is just based on certain levels. I uh, have a conditional in there, so if it goes low enough, then it kind of um, comes to my attention and highlights it. Forward PE, I pull this from Finviz, so it automatically gets pulled in. Uh, current PE, I pull from Google Finance. And then the dividend discount model, 12% return and a 33% margin of safety. In this case, it's negative because the five-year compound annual growth rate is actually bigger since it's about 15%. It's larger than the 12% the return I'm looking for. So in this case, it comes back negative to calculate the intrinsic value. I manually put in what industry it's in. I've also kind of pulled that dynamically, but uh, I tended to like to define the industry myself. Right now, it's only one stock listed, so 100% of the portfolio is, is um, theoretically Disney. Uh, annual dividend, I, I pull this uh, manually and automatically in kind of two different fields. And this is helpful. I have a conditional on there that if they raise their dividend, um, it's going to kind of call it out visually for me in the portfolio. If they lower it, it's going to call it out. And I, I try to stay on top of the news. So I tend to know when they do those things, but it's still nice to have a check in there. I know recently one of my 
one of my businesses raised their dividend and I missed it and it was nice to have that visual check in here. This is when the company tends to increase their dividends. So this is a manual field that I put in. Pay date uh, and the conditional on there kind of changes based on um, what day it is. So today is like August 1st. So it'd be green if it's something in the future. Um, it goes red if it's within a certain number of days. It'll go yellow. So go back to the original thing, which pulls it dynamically from, in this case, NASDAQ. Sometimes there's too many connections going out to NASDAQ. You'll get a ref. You have to refresh. Still having issues with NASDAQ. Dividend yield, calculated based on the spreadsheet. The three-year dividend compound annual growth rate um, with conditional, just to drop my attention if it's higher than a certain amount. Um, and this one I pull from Guru Focus. The five-year dividend compound annual growth rate. And then one that I calculate manually. I like to do it uh, manually. I'll show you how I do that in a future video, how I calculate it. And I like to do it automatically and just kind of see if they're both in the same ballpark. And then the average weighted five-year dividend compound annual growth rate. So again, as more businesses get added into the spreadsheet, it becomes kind of more interesting to see what your overall portfolio um, compound annual growth rate is for the dividends. And the same thing with the um, average weighted dividend yield. Let's see what your initial starting dividend yield is going to be. Um, looking for you know, forward estimates for income growth. Market value. And then this field obviously I care about the most, which is as a passive income investor, how much uh, Disney is dripping each year. Uh, payout ratio I'm pulling from Finviz, and it's higher than 70%. Again, it'll draw my attention to it. This is another good one to double check because sometimes uh, Finviz can throw off a wacky number here. And then dividend information that we're all interested in, the number of years of dividend data that they have in the database or that I can find, consecutive years of dividend increases, uh, the number of years with dividend increases, and the number of dividend cuts and the number of delayed dividend increases. So obviously we want to keep dividend cuts at zero and we want to um, minimize um, the number of delayed dividend increases and ideally see the consecutive years increasing the most. Pull this data uh, partially from Street Insider, so it's a handy site you can go to just to see how the dividends have been increasing over time. Normally I'll go to directly to the investor relations portion of their site. In this case, uh, Disney's, I prefer to go externally because um, theirs didn't give me what I wanted. And then we have just a, uh, oh yeah, this is just a, it's checking if, if the number of consecutive years is greater than or equal to 25, it'll, it'll mark this yes. Beta of the company and the average weighted beta across the portfolio. We've got the market cap 
and the average weighted market cap, so 256 billion for Disney. And then just some optional fields that I used to uh, you know, work with other parts of the spreadsheet. So this is the PE to consider buying it and a manual annual dividend field that I put in. So when the automatic one isn't working, this can be used instead. The difference between winning and losing is most often not quitting. This Disney quote makes a lot of sense once you learn about Walt's life experiences and how he kept pushing through anything that stood in his way. The takeaway from this quote is to keep pushing forward when you really believe in something, even when you are being told no, even when you are failing. Stay determined and keep moving forward like Disney if you want to win. So instead of just learning about the Walt Disney Company, I think there are good leadership lessons that can be learned from understanding Walt's personal history. So let's take a look at him as part of this analysis. Once upon a time, there was a young boy named Walter Elias Disney. Walt was born in 1901 in Chicago. In 1911, his family moved to Missouri. Disney developed his interest in drawing when he was paid to draw the horse of a retired neighborhood doctor. His drawing skills improved by copying newspaper cartoons. At night, his mother, Flora, read fairy tales to her children. Disney and his brother, Roy, woke up early every morning to deliver newspapers before and after school. The schedule was tiring, and Disney often received poor grades after falling asleep in class. So even at a young age, Walt was showing his work ethic. In high school, he took evening art classes, and he was his school newspaper's junior art editor. It was in Missouri that Walt developed a love for an amusement park called Electric Park, which had 100,000 electric lights on a roller coaster. In 1918, Walt wanted to join his brother Roy, who was fighting in World War I. So Disney attempted to join the U.S. Army to fight against the Germans, but he was not allowed to join because he was too young. Never one to give up, he forged his date of birth on his birth certificate. And he joined the Red Cross as an ambulance driver and was shipped to France. There, he drew cartoons on the side of his ambulance for decoration and had some of his cartoons published in the Army newspaper. So here we see Disney pushing through whatever hurdles were in front of him to accomplish his goals. He returned back to Missouri in 1919, where he became an apprentice artist at an art studio. That's where he became friends with fellow artist Ub Iwerks. But the studio they worked for fell on hard times, and Disney and Iwerks got laid off. So Ub and Disney start their own company called Iwerks Disney Commercial Artists but that company failed to make any real money. So they both joined an ad company, which was making animations via a technique called the cutout method. Cutout animation is a technique for producing animation using flat characters, props, and backgrounds cut from materials such as paper. Think of what the animation in South Park looks like. Not very three-dimensional. Disney thought that cell animation was superior to cutout animation, and he started experimenting at home with a camera and with a book he borrowed on animation. He decided to start a new business with a co-worker, Fred Harmon. Their main customer was a local theater called Newman Theater. Walt and Fred made cartoons modeled after Aesop's fables, 
which were called Newman's Laughograms. These cartoons were successful at first, and Walt formed Laughogram Studio, where Walt hired multiple other animators, including iWorks. But eventually Laughograms wasn't making enough money, and Walt's studio went into bankruptcy. It was at Laughogram Studios that Walt supposedly came up with the inspiration of Mickey Mouse because of a mouse that frequented his office while he drew. More on that later. Walt's brother Roy was recovering from tuberculosis in Los Angeles, so Walt moved to be with him. There he formed the Disney Brothers Studios, which later became the Walt Disney Company. One of the artists Walt hired for his company was Lillian Bounds, who he ended up marrying. Disney and iWorks created a new cartoon character called Oswald the Lucky Rabbit for Charles Mintz, a film producer who wanted to distribute their work through Universal Pictures. Oswald was doing well, so Disney went to Mintz to negotiate for more money. But Mintz offered even less money to them, and he went around their backs and persuaded many of Walt's artists to work for Mintz instead. Walt also found out that Universal owned the rights to his Oswald cartoon character. So Walt decided that he needed to create a new character that he could fully own. So he and Iwerks came up with Mickey Mouse. I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing that was all started by a mouse. Walt was originally going to call him Mortimer Mouse, but his wife suggested Mickey. Iwerks and Walt collaborated on creating Mickey, and Walt was the voice of Mickey Mouse for many years. A Disney employee once said that Iwerks created how Mickey looked, but Walt gave Mickey his soul. The first two cartoons they created for Mickey couldn't find a distributor, but the third Mickey Mouse cartoon short, Steamboat Willie, included a new innovation, sound that was synchronized to the cartoon on the screen, and the audiences loved it. Disney asked his distributor, a former Universal exec, for more money, but he was refused. And then his distributor signed iWorks to work for him rather than Walt. Walt felt that without iWorks, the Disney studio would close, and he had a nervous breakdown. So Walt left that distributor and went to Columbia Pictures to distribute his Mickey Mouse material. And this time he leveraged new technical innovations to use full color in his cartoons. Walt won his first of his 22 Academy Awards for one of his color cartoons he made. Walt grew more ambitious and felt that feature-length cartoon movies would be more profitable. So his studio embarked on a new project, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which took four years to create. Many in the industry predicted it would bankrupt Walt's studio. Walt wanted to make sure the animation looked as realistic as possible, so he sent his animation team to take courses at a professional art school. He brought in actors and animals into his studio so his animators could model realistic movement. His studio developed a new innovative multiplane camera to create the illusion of depth in the cartoon. Snow White ended up costing $1.5 million to make, which was three times over budget. Industry insiders named the movie Disney's Folly. When Snow White came out, both audiences and critics loved it. It became the most successful motion picture of 1938, and in a year it had receipts of $6.5 million, which was wildly successful. More than 250,000 paintings like these were created by Walt Disney and his staff of artists to make the most daring adventure in the history of motion pictures. The next decade brought on WW2, 
in multiple movies that Walt made, including Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Dumbo. The studio went deep into debt because the films didn't perform as needed, partly due to the war. To generate cash, Disney and his brother Roy decided to take their private company public, and they IPO'd in 1940. He continued making movies including Bambi, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, and a full live-action movie, Treasure Island. For many years, Walt had been thinking about opening a theme park. He wanted to create a pristine park that both kids and adults could enjoy. He took some inspiration from the cleanliness and layout of Tivoli Gardens in Denmark, the second oldest operating amusement park in the world. Walt sent his animators and park designers, aka his Imagineers, to every theme park in the U.S. to analyze what worked and what didn't work, and then use that data to build Disneyland, which opened in 1955 and which the crowds loved. Shortly after this, Roy and Walt realized that TV would be a great revenue stream for their company, and they started a daily TV show called the Mickey Mouse Club. They continued making movies such as Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, Sword in the Stone, Mary Poppins, The Jungle Book, and Winnie the Pooh. So look at the challenges Walt faced and overcame. Not doing well in school, getting laid off, starting multiple companies and having them fail or be in significant debt, creating new intellectual property and finding out he didn't legally own it, having more experienced industry experts think his cartoon feature films would fail, having a nervous breakdown. And yet Disney persisted. The difference between winning and losing is most often not quitting. My family loves Disney. Part of my motivation for buying Disney went beyond their financials and potential growth. It had to do with my wife and kids. I wanted to utilize their love of Disney to raise their interest in investing in dividend stocks. Many of the other stocks in my portfolio don't jazz them, but Disney really does. And it's one of those companies that I feel like will still be going strong 50 years from now. And as you can see, according to the Forbes 2019 study ranking brands, pretty much everyone knows Disney. We see Disney in the top 10 brands in the world. Beyond just the brand goodness, which is hard to quantitatively assess, they've been growing. They have a nice trend of increasing revenue over the last decade. And since they started their dividend, it has had consecutive increases. For my dividend investing, I wanted to calculate the yield on cost for Disney over different periods of time to see when it would really pay off, assuming its previous trends held into the future. So I'm using a manual five-year dividend compound annual growth rate in the last five years, and I'm assuming we see similar growth going forward. So it won't be delivering a yield on cost that starts becoming compelling until around 15 years from now, i.e. over 10%, assuming its growth continues. Lots of risk in that, given they have relatively short dividend history. But the takeaway from this is that from a DGI perspective, you are really playing a long game with this one. My wife and I are in our 40s, so I figure it will be decent for us, but much better for our kids someday. Or to put it another way, from a passive dividend income perspective, if you want or need passive income now, and you just plan to buy and hold, then Disney probably isn't an ideal choice for you. But the longer your investment horizon is, the better it becomes. 
Disney is massive. Their entertainment holdings include Walt Disney Studios, Disney Music Group, Disney Theatrical Group, Walt Disney Television, Radio Disney, ESPN, National Geographic Partners, Disney Interactive, Disney Consumer Products, Disney India, The Muppet Studio, Pixar, Marvel Entertainment, Marvel Studios, 20th Century Fox, Fox Searchlight Pictures, Blue Sky Studios, UTV Software Communications, Lucasfilm, Hulu, and Disney Digital Network. The company's resorts and diversified related holdings include Walt Disney Parks and Resorts, Walt Disney World, Disneyland Resort, Tokyo Disney Resort, Disneyland Paris, Hong Kong Disneyland Resort, Shanghai Disney Resort, Disney Vacation Club, Disney Cruise Line, and Adventures by Disney. So let's dive into the core business segments of Disney. Here are the 2018 revenues by segment at Disney. They reclassified their four business segments in 2019 to Studio Entertainment, which is movies and music recording, Media Networks, which is TV such as ESPN, Walt Disney Television, ABC, Nat Geo, and such, Direct to Consumer and International, which is Disney+, ESPN+, Hulu, and Hotstar, and Parks, Experiences, and Products, which are their theme parks and cruises and such. As you can see, they are North America-centric in terms of revenue, but it's great to see that their revenue in other regions like Asia is growing quickly. So a lot of upside potential there, I believe. So let's dive into each segment. Studio Entertainment, which is movies and music recording and such, includes the company's primary business unit, the Walt Disney Studios, which includes its film, music recording label, and theatrical divisions. This segment generates revenue from the distribution of films in the theatrical, home entertainment, and TV and SVOD markets, which is subscription video on demand, single-play ticket sales, music distribution, and licensing of their intellectual property for use in live entertainment productions. Significant expenses include amortization of production, participations in residual costs, marketing and sales costs, distribution expenses, and cost of sales. The next one is media networks, which is TV such as ESPN, Walt Disney Television, ABC, Nat Geo, etc. Fox, obviously all the Fox. So this is Disney's broadcast, cable, radio, and publishing and digital businesses. Segment generates revenue from affiliate fees, ad sales, and other revenues, which include the sale and distribution of television programs and subscription fees for their direct-to-consumer offerings. Significant expenses include amortization of programming, production, participations in residual costs, technical support costs, operating labor and distribution costs, retail occupancy costs, product development, and marketing. Next, we have parks, experiences, and products, which includes the company's theme parks, cruise line, and travel-related assets, consumer products, and publishing divisions. It generates revenue from the sale of admissions to theme parks, the sale of food, beverage and merchandise, charges for room nights at hotels, sales of cruise vacation packages, and sales of rentals of vacation club properties. Revenues are also generated from sponsorships and co-branding opportunities, real estate rent, and sales and royalties from Tokyo Disney Resort. Significant expenses include operating labor, infrastructure costs, depreciation, 
cost of sales and other expenses. Infrastructure costs include IT system expense, repairs and maintenance, utilities and fuel, property taxes, insurance and transportation, and other expenses which include costs such as supplies, commissions, and entertainment offerings. Disney changed their segment reporting structure in Q1 of fiscal 19 in response to visibility requested by investors with the goal of giving us better ability to assess their operating performance. So they did that. The first segment I'll cover is direct to consumer and international, which has four main services that Disney offers or will offer soon. Disney Plus, which is coming up, ESPN Plus, Hulu, and Hotstar. Disney realized that the consumer was clamoring for streaming and has positioned themselves well to capitalize on this global phenomenon. Netflix obviously comes to mind when you think of a leader in this space. Look at this incredible growth of 37% compound annual growth rate in paid video subs worldwide. As you can see, each service has its own unique revenue model, such as subscription-based or ad-based, amongst others. Let's look at Hulu, one of Disney's streaming direct-to-consumer services. Hulu is a subscription-based video-on-demand service. It has live TV and a library of recent TV episodes. Disney currently owns two-thirds of Hulu, with Comcast owning one-third. But they struck a deal with Comcast to purchase their 33% Hulu stake by January 2024, which will give Disney full operational control of Hulu. As you can see, Hulu is enjoying incredible growth in the U.S. Let's compare that to Netflix, who is obviously one of the kings of streaming. So Hulu is still behind Netflix in terms of pure subscribers, but it is growing fast. Disney estimates that Hulu will have between 40 million and 60 million subscribers by the end of fiscal 2024. They expect Hulu's operating losses to peak at about 1.5 billion for fiscal 2019. They expect to hit domestic profitability in fiscal 2023 or 2024. Now let's look at ESPN Plus, another of Disney's streaming direct-to-consumer services. ESPN Plus is a streaming subscription service launched last year in 2018 and is available in the United States. It is owned by Walt Disney in partnership with ESPN, which is a joint venture between the Walt Disney Company, which owns a controlling 80% stake, and the Hearst Communications, which owns the remaining 20%. ESPN Plus has more than 2 million paid subscribers and continues to grow at an impressive pace. Disney expects ESPN to grow to between 8 to 12 million by the end of 2024. They expect ESPN Plus to generate annual operating losses of about 650 million in both fiscal 2019 and fiscal 2020, and they expect ESPN Plus to achieve profitability in fiscal 2023. ESPN is synonymous with sports across all age groups. ESPN reaches almost 200 million people a month across TV and digital in the U.S. It is the top-rated cable network among men for the last 13 years. In Disney's latest Investor Day presentation, they said that they rank number one in global digital sports category for unique users and minutes consumed, and are 44% higher than their closest competitor. ESPN will cover 24,000 live events in 2019. Now let's look at Hotstar, another of Disney's streaming direct-to-consumer services. Hotstar is an Indian video streaming service that Disney owns that came as part of its recent 21st Century Fox acquisition. Hotstar is a subsidiary of Star India, which is owned by Disney. 
Hotstar lets their customers watch a wide variety of live sports, Indian TV shows, and movies either on their app or their website. So kind of like Hulu in India. India is the sixth largest economy in the world, but the fastest growing, projected to be the third largest economy in the next 10 years. Star India has a network of 60 channels in eight different languages, reaching out to nine out of 10 cable and satellite TV homes in India. Star's network reaches 790 million viewers a month across India and more than 100 countries. Star has almost a 30% share of all TV and digital advertising. Disney is so dominant in India that for every four hours of TV that is watched in India, one hour is on Disney Star. Hotstar now has more than 300 million monthly active users, which makes it one of the largest video platforms in the world. They have the largest youth population in the world, which means 600 million potential customers below the age of 25. And this demographic is what you want to target for streaming services, as they are savvy and hungering for more content. As you can see, Disney continues to drive innovation. Their Hotstar app has created great consumer engagement via gamifying what people are watching. It has integrations into social media platforms, etc. Finally, let's look at Disney's last streaming direct consumer service, Disney+. Plus. Disney Plus is a new streaming service that is coming out in November of 2019. It will eventually be accessible via web browsers as apps on things like Roku, smart TVs, gaming consoles, and smartphones. Disney Plus will have a monthly price option of $6.99 as well as an annual option for $69.99. It should be a great competitor for Netflix, Amazon, YouTube, CBS, and Viacom. Disney Plus will have something like 7,000 television episodes and 500 films on it. It will have content from Disney's properties, so TV shows and movies. Think of classic Disney movies and the content from Pixar like Toy Story, all the Marvel movies, all the Star Wars movies from Lucasfilm, content from National Geographic, and now all of 20th Century Fox. Some of the movies and TV shows will show up on the service when the streaming rights allow them to show up so it might come a little bit after they launch. They are also creating original content for their platform based on Marvel IP and Star Wars IP. For Marvel, there will be a series of characters like Loki, Hawkeye, and others. For Star Wars, there will be a series called The Mandalorian by Jon Favreau coming out. Disney is going to go global by the end of 2020, so they hit Western Europe and Asia Pacific in the end of 2019, early 2020, and Eastern Europe and Latin America by the end of 2020. Disney Plus content will be all family-friendly content, whereas Hulu is a broader demographic. Disney estimates it will have between 60 million and 90 million subscribers for Disney Plus around the world by the end of fiscal 2024, and they expect that about one-third of their subscriber base will come from the U.S. and two-thirds will come from outside the U.S. So I'd love to see international growth like that. Disney Plus expects to seek profitability in fiscal 2024 due to aggressive investments Disney is making, so they expect operating losses to peak between fiscal 2020 and fiscal 2022. So you can see that fiscal 2023 and 2024 should be big upswing in profitability due to ESPN Plus and Disney Plus and Hulu profitability estimates. Now let's look at their largest revenue segment, media networks, and let's start with their 10K from 2018. The media network segment includes ESPN, 
the Disney Channel, Radio Disney, ABC Family, A&E Networks, National Geographic, UTV Bindas in India, and in this upcoming year's 10K, it should include Fox Network Group. The revenue in this segment comes from their cable networks and their broadcasting revenue. Disney generates revenue from fees charged to companies like Dish and Comcast, and to television stations affiliated with them to deliver their programs to those company subscribers, which is called affiliate fees. These fees are contractually specified rates on a per-subscriber basis, so as cord cutting happens with someone like Comcast, ultimately it can impact Disney. They also generate revenue from the sale to advertisers for commercials, which they call ad sales, and they generate revenue from licensing television networks and distributors the right to use their television programming, which they call program sales. The amounts that they can charge to MVPDs, which is what Comcast and Dish and such are called, for their cable network programming is largely dependent on the quality and quantity of their programming. Their ability to sell time and the rates received for commercials are primarily dependent on the size and nature of the audience that the network can deliver to their advertiser, as well as overall advertiser demand. So advertisers want good eyeballs on their ads, and that's what they strive to pay for. Speaking from an industry perspective, with advances in technology, advertisers can now better target who sees their ads on TV. So they might serve up a Toyota Corolla ad to me when I'm watching a TV show, but they might show a Mercedes ad to you, even though we were watching the same program, because they have good insights into the demographics of who is watching their programming. This is a technology that is still growing in the TV industry to appropriately target advertising based on who is watching, though it is something that the web world has had for years. So overall, pretty flat numbers. The industry is fighting cord cutting, but they can somewhat mitigate that with their rate increases, as well as having incredible quality programming, which Disney obviously has. We can get more detailed breakout of revenue in their quarterlies. So let's see how they did in Q2 of FY19. Operating expenses in the media segment primarily consist of programming and production costs to make their content, participations and residuals expense, technical support costs, distribution costs, and operating labor costs. Now let's discuss their studio entertainment segment. Let's look at box office revenues for the major studios for the last three years. Here you see Disney, which is Buena Vista, dominating. Buena Vista is a brand name which was historically often used for divisions and subsidiaries of the Walt Disney Company, whose primary studios, the Walt Disney Studios, are located on Buena Vista Street in Burbank, California. Now imagine them with 20th Century Fox box office combined in there be massive. For reference, AT&T owns Warner Brothers, Comcast owns Universal Pictures and thus DreamWorks Animation, Viacom owns Paramount and itself is owned by National Amusements, Sony owns Columbia Pictures. All of these are competitors to Disney. And now let's look at a longer trend of Disney's studio track record from 2000 until now. As you can see, Disney is the dominant force in box office revenue market share in North America. And how about the studio revenues since about when Iger, the CEO, came on board? In 2019, the lineup Disney has had has been incredible. Avengers Endgame, Captain Marvel, Toy Story 4, Lion King. This is Disney's biggest grossing year of all time, and it's only August. And still upcoming later in the year, we have Star Wars Episode 9 and Frozen 2 insane. 
And with 20th Century Fox, they've gained the incredible Avatar franchise, which is even more horsepower to their lineup. Now let's cover the parks, experiences, and products segment. Most of us are familiar with parks if you've been to Disneyland or Disney World. Lots of rides. And just general fun. He's walking down to the hallway. He's going to open the dungeon door. What are you going to do? What Andy comes for you? i tell you what you're going to do. Freeze. Out of boys. Now that you know how to freeze, we're going to put you three paces. My men are going to play. You recruits are going to dance. You, Sergeant Silly Putty, are going to shake what your manufacturer gave you. And then whenever they're done playing, I want you all to freeze the first pose. I want to As you can see, Disney dominates when it comes to attendance at theme parks. One concern that some might have is how their annual attendance might do in a recession. So let's see how their annual attendance fared in 2000 and 2008. So we see a slight dip after the dot-com crash and in 2008, but they weren't materially impacted. And beyond the number of people attending their parks, they continue to raise prices. Attendance numbers show how Disney's parks dominate the industry. According to analysts at the Themed Entertainment Association, Disney theme parks had 150 million visitors worldwide last year, which is more than three times as many people who visited Universal's parks. Six Flags and Knott's Berry Farm owner Cedar Fair are ranked even further behind. Now also included in this business segment is the Disney Cruise Line. So Disney still has a ways to go if they want to dominate in terms of revenue, which is a, a great growth opportunity. However, while they don't top the revenue charts for cruising, they are very highly rated by their passengers. And they charge premium prices for a premium experience, which customers are paying. So I'm just going to do a quick analysis of Disney's financial statements, and I'll do a line-by-line -line financial statement set of videos later. For a more in-depth analysis, we would be looking at more trends, ratios, comparing more to competitors in the market, etc. Let's do a high-level analysis for now. So let's look at their income statement to see how the trends look. The income statement is about profit and loss. We've talked to now understand about the main drivers for revenue performance and cost in each segment. So let's first look at the top line revenue performance. We see OK improvement from 2015 to 2018 with a slight dip in 2017. But I'd like to see more revenue growth. Normally I'd calculate it, but for now I'll just do a quick visual check. Let's look at the bottom line, net income, aka profit. Again, we see some growth over time. Ideally, I'd like to see about the same growth rate percentage between the top line and the bottom line. What comes out to me is the change in net income from 2017 to 2018. Net income is about five bill lower than operating income each year, other than in 2018 when it jumps up. Why is that? Let's dig into the 10K to find out what is happening in the interest and tax rows to see why net income improved so much from 2017 to 2018. The change primarily came from the tax rows, so let's dig into that. What we see here from their 10K is that Disney had a huge cut in their effective income tax rate due to Trump's U.S. Tax and Jobs Act. The U.S. corporate federal statutory income tax rate was reduced from 35% to 21%. So their effective rate, tax rate was 34.2% in 2016 and 32.1% in 2017. But in 2018, their effective tax rate was only 
wow. Not Amazon wow, but wow. Disney pays about the same income taxes as Amazon, but they only have about a quarter of their revenue. Ideally, I'd like to see their improvements come from their own growth and efficiencies, but the tax change was a nice benefit for Disney. So things are trending in a positive direction for such a large company. Revenue increasing, net income increasing. Nothing as spectacular as, say, Google's income statement, but still positive. Now let's look at their balance sheet. One thing I should have mentioned is where do you get a company's financial statements, in this case their balance sheet. Their best place is the 10K on the investor relations portion of their company's website. That will be the most accurate. Sometimes there can be disparities when you use random stuff on Google. For example, look at market trends. It shows total liabilities in September of 2018 at $45.766 billion. Now let's look at Yahoo Finance to see what they have for total liabilities for Disney. Here we see it at $44.643 billion. So let's see what the 10K has. So we took the total assets, subtracted the total equity to get the liabilities, 45,766. So it looks like market trends had it correct. So what is the balance sheet? Think of a balance sheet as just the financial position of a company at a point in time. It shows what a company owns, which is its assets, what it owns, which is its liabilities, and the shareholder's equity, aka the net worth. Assets equal equity plus liabilities. It's called a balance sheet because the assets have to balance the liabilities and equity. Let's first look at the balance sheet to see what information is in it. The top section are the assets, usually listed in order of liquidity. By that I mean cash is listed first as it is very liquid. Quick note, you see the word current before assets and before liabilities. Current basically just means in the next 12 months. So current liabilities are those that are due within the next 12 months. Okay, the next section in the balance sheet are the liabilities, often listed in order of how soon they're to be paid. And the final section on the balance sheet is shareholders' equity, also known as net worth. This is the amount of money that would be returned to shareholders if all the assets were liquidated and all the company's debt was paid off. Now there are three main things on the balance sheet that I like to look for when I'm quickly analyzing a business. Number one, is the company growing? Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? And number three, do they have too much debt? Let's start with number one. It is important that the balance sheet is growing, i.e. its equity is growing. I look at that because I feel that over the long term, a company's stock price should move generally in the same way as its equity does. So if a company can consistently grow equity over the long term, and you can buy it at a good price, 
then it should be a decent investment. So is Disney growing year over year? Equity equals total assets minus total liabilities. So in 2015, if we look at the information on the balance sheet, equity was about 48.6 billion. In 2016, equity was 47.3 billion. In 2017, equity was 45 billion. And in 2018, equity was 52.8 billion. So no, equity doesn't show growth year over year, though they had a nice uptick from 2017 to 2018. Ideally, I'd like to see 10% equity growth each year. Even better would be seeing the growth rate percentage increase year over year. But for a solid, mature, large cap, this is very challenging. Why else do I want to see that growth? Well, if they are increasing their equity over time, then it means they are retaining their profits to buy good assets and or pay down debt. The number two item I like to look at on a balance sheet is if the company can cover its short-term debt obligations, i.e. how easily can the company pay from existing assets for its ongoing expenses, things like payroll or capital equipment. A way to get a gauge on that is for us to calculate the current ratio, which is a liquidity ratio that measures whether a company has enough resources to meet its short-term obligations. So current ratio equals current assets divided by current liabilities. In 2018, the current ratio was about 0.942. The company's current ratio of 0.94 indicates somewhat an inadequate degree of liquidity with only 94 cents of current assets available to cover every $1 of current liabilities. A ratio higher than one indicates that a company will have a high chance of being able to pay off its shorter term debt, whereas a ratio of less than one indicates that a company may not be able to pay off its shorter term debt. Ideally, I'd like to see current ratio between a 1 and a 3. Ratios that are extremely high might suggest that a company is hoarding assets that aren't strictly necessary, so worth digging more into. So strike 2 for me, at least for their balance sheet. Number 3, finally, let's figure out if Disney has taken on too much debt. The debt-to-equity ratio offers a way for us to gauge whether a business has taken on too much debt. And that's total liabilities over equity. In 2018, total assets were $98.6 billion, equity was $52.8 billion, liabilities were $45.7 billion, so debt to equity was $45.7 billion divided by $52.8 billion, which is about 0.866. Higher debt to equity ratios tend to indicate a company stock with higher risk to shareholders. It means that a company has been aggressive in financing its growth with debt. But if it's too low, it's a sign that your company is over-relying on equity to finance your business, which can be costly and inefficient. 1 to 1.5 is generally reasonable, so it's a bit low here. So what is happening here with Disney and its not-so-hot balance sheet? Why would I still invest? Well, Disney is in a state of transition. Even though most people think of Disney for its movies and theme parks, its biggest business has been media networks with ESPN being a large driver of that media network revenue. ESPN subscriber numbers have been falling since 2011 due to cord cutting and such. So, Disney realizes the changing consumer media consumption landscape, and they are investing heavily into streaming. And I think their strategy is spot on. The other good news is that their other businesses, the theme parks, movies and resorts, 
are still growing. So even though I'm not seeing what I'd normally want to see on a balance sheet, I'm still willing to invest and risk my investment on their future growth potential that I see. Okay, let's take a quick look at their cash flow statement. We want to find out if the company is bringing in real cash, which is good, or if it is generating cash by borrowing money or selling pieces of its business. So we want to figure out the free cash flow number, or what Warren Buffett calls the owner earnings. The number we calculate represents what the cash flow that is available to all stakeholders of the business before it is divided up to the debt holders or equity holders. Free cash flow signals a company's ability to pay down debt, pay dividends, buy back stock, and facilitate the growth of the business. This is money the company can use to build the company faster. It's the money the company can give to its owners. So we find the net operating cash flow and we subtract CapEx from this. So in 2018, 4.3 billion minus 4.47 billion is 9.83 billion. 2017, they had 8.72 billion. 2016, 8.54 billion. High or rising free cash flow is often a sign of a healthy company that is doing well. So that's good. Finally, let's calculate return on assets. ROA measures how efficiently a company can squeeze profit from its assets. ROA equals net income divided by total assets. ROA is over 5% or generally what we're looking for. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. So in 2018, the ROA was 12.6 divided by 98.6, which equals 12.7%. Not bad, and higher than Netflix, Comcast, and Verizon for 2018. In 2017, we had 9.4%, and 2016 return on assets was 10.2%. Okay, let's move from their financials and talk about their leadership. The average tenure of the Walt Disney management team is over 10 years. I did a Google check on each of them to see if I could find any interesting dirt, and nothing came up. I do that because sometimes executives kind of move between companies, and even though they do rigorous background checks, sometimes I've still seen companies hire executives that I would think would be a mistake. In this case, I don't find any issues. So I'm talking about Bob Iger, their CEO, 14 years, Christine McCarthy, their CFO, Alan Braverman, EVP and General Counsel, Xenia Mukha, Senior EVP and Chief Communications Officer, Jane Parker, EVP and Chief Human Resource Officer, Kevin Mayer, Chairman of DTZs, Brent Woodford, EVP of Controllership, Bob Chapik, Chairman of Parks, and someone who might be next in line after Bob Iger, or maybe it'll be Kevin or someone else. My guess would be uh, Bob. Tough call. And finally, Lowell Singer, SVP of Investor Relations. Okay, so the big question is, is Disney worth buying at these prices? Disney's PE is at 19.6 compared to the average S&P of 21.3. I personally feel the stock is a bit pricey. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and this isn't a recommendation. I'd personally be more inclined to jump in under $110 a share, ideally under $100. But it all depends on your analysis, risk tolerance, and time frame for a return. So Disney is investing on original content for consumers. They expect their cash investment in original content to be over $1 billion in fiscal 2020, and they expect to invest up to the mid $2 billion range by fiscal 2024. That means great new movies and series for us to enjoy in the upcoming years, which I believe will translate into incredible revenue growth. Disney is like a dividend which keeps on growing and growing. 
Their content is reusable amongst generations. My parents took me to the parks, and now I'm taking my kids. I watch Disney movies with my parents, and now I'm doing the same with my kids. Listen to what the Godfathers of Investing said about Disney. I don't know about your children and grandchildren, but mine want to see Disney. <laughs> and they want to see it over and over and over again. <laughs> they don't want to see Katzenberg. <laughs> well, I... <laughs> I mean, in terms of the trade name. <laughs> it's a pretty good trade name. I mean, when you think about names around the world, it, it's interesting that, uh, uh, you know, there's very hard to beat the name Coca-Cola, but uh, uh, Disney's got a, it's a very, very big name. And Charlie's point that they want to see him over and over again, and um, it's kind of nice to, to be able to recycle Snow White every <laughs> seven or eight years, you hit a different crowd. And uh, it's kind of like having an oil field, you know, where you pump out all the oil and sell it, and then it all seeps back in over <laughs> seven or eight years. <laughs> Part of what I love about Disney from a business perspective is how its businesses are all synergistic upon one another. They make a movie. They might turn that into an episodic TV series or might turn it into a new attraction at their parks, and it might be leveraged on their cruise line. And of course, there are lots of merchandising implications. My only regret was not buying more of Disney in the past, but I almost always feel that way, that I wish I had invested more. So are there any reasons not to own Disney, or are there any controversies out there? Well, there is some recent controversy with Abigail Disney, who's the granddaughter of Roy Disney, who was the co-founder of the Walt Disney Company with her great-uncle Walt Disney. She is a filmmaker, philanthropist, and social activist worth $120 million. Abigail Disney said she found workers struggling at the park when she recently visited. She called out Bob Iger to address the issue and criticized his compensation. Disney responded by pointing out it pays its workers above the federal minimum wage with a starting hourly wage of $15 at California's Disneyland. The company has committed $150 million to its Disney Aspire program that pays for workers to earn a college, high school, or vocational degree. Disney also said that the company has made historic investments in its workers' pay and benefits. They defended the CEO's compensation, and they said, Disney has added more than 70,000 jobs during Mr. Iger's tenure and has made historic investments to expand the earning potential and upward mobility of our workers. They said his comp is 90% performance-based. The company said that Iger has delivered exceptional value to shareholders. So let's see how Disney has performed as compared to the S&P 500 since Iger joined. Yep, Iger has really executed for Disney. What are some potential risks for Disney? Well, speaking of Bob Iger, Disney might have a management risk. He said he is stepping down from the CEO role in 2021, a role he's been in since 2005. But they are mitigating that with succession planning. What other risks are out there? Well, consumer changing habits towards media consumption is obviously going on. Cord cutting leads to their losses for their cable networks. This risk is considerable because Disney's media network segment is its largest and most profitable business unit. But I think their streaming uh, response will mitigate a lot of that and eventually will be profitable. There's some risk to integrating 21st Century Fox, but they've done large acquisitions such as ABC, so this one is manageable. 
So remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves the risks. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double-checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me, after you completely understand it. And to quote Nassim Taleb from Skin in the Game, Hidden Asymmetries in Daily Life, Beware of the person who gives advice, telling you that a certain action on your part is good for you, while it is also good for him, while the harm to you doesn't directly affect him. So please don't blindly follow anyone's advice on YouTube without doing your own rigorous analysis. Have conviction with all your investments. My hope for this channel and community is that collectively we can educate, inspire, and entertain one another as we share our thoughts, experiences, and perspectives about dividend investing. I hope to learn from all of you, whether you have never invested or are a veteran, as I believe that each person has their own unique and valuable background, which should be shared, and which I'd appreciate hearing. I have a lot I still need to learn about investing, so I've really appreciated watching videos of more knowledgeable investors out there than myself, such as PPC Ian and Phil Town and Sven Carlson, to name just a few. Finally, remember that there will always be people out there with smaller portfolios than you and larger portfolios than you. That doesn't matter. What matters is if you are taking actions today to try and better yourself for tomorrow. So I'll see you in the next video. And remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it. Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons and share this with others.